Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses issues of international significance. Today, we explore the rise of Adolf Hitler nearly a century ago with a historian who has written extensively about it in the context of our current pandemic, economic, and racial crises. We're fortunate to have with us today Benjamin Carter Hett, a professor of history at Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center. Professor Hett is the author most recently of The Nazi Menace, Hitler, Churchill, Stalin, Roosevelt, and the Road to War, which has just appeared from Henry Holt. Uh, just two years ago, Professor Hett also published The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power, and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic, also with Henry Holt. The two volumes analyze the circumstances domestically and internationally that accompanied Hitler's rise to power in Germany and the response of the Allies to his attempt to dominate Europe and the world. Thanks so much for being with us today, Ben Hett. Thanks, John. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Great to have you. Thanks for taking the time. So first, uh, it seems to me one of the important points you make in the early pages of the Nazi menace concerns the, con- the contingency of history. That is, things don't have to turn out the way they actually do. People can change them. And indeed, it seems to me much of the book is a close examination of the ideas of the four people mentioned in the subtitle, Hitler, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin, and how these ideas shape their actions. This is something, it seems to me, uh, uh, something of a departure from the kind of history written by academics in recent years. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the argument of the book and how it differs from other accounts of the run-up to World War II. Sure. Thanks. Well, I think your point is really well taken. Um, I think my approach to writing about these things is probably rooted partly in a, a kind of basic moral intuition, which is, as you put it in your question, that, you know, people make events, people are capable of changing them, and that means that people are responsible for what flows from um, the actions that they take. And then there's also, I would guess, if it's not too sort of pompous to put it this way, there's a bit of an intellectual agenda in the sense that I've always been in some ways a bit of a reactionary, I think, in historical methodology. I can remember being a graduate student and being kind of both surprised and mildly irritated by some of the interpretations in in several periods of history, but famously around Nazi Germany and the Third Reich, which really moved the focus away from personal decision-making and personal responsibility and looked more at structural factors and forces and so on. Not that there isn't a value in doing that, but I I do think, um, and I do think that events of the last three and a half years particularly have maybe reminded us that who is at the top really matters. And, uh, you know, individuals and individual decision-making really matters. So you're quite right, I think, to point to that being an important, in my view, an important kind of underlying theme of uh, both of these recent books um, that I've done. As far as the argument goes and how it differs from um, 
some of what has been written on this subject. I mean, obviously, um, you know, in these last two books, I've taken on subjects which, to put it mildly, there is no shortage of writing about, and uh, there is no shortage of brilliant, brilliant, groundbreaking work on these subjects. So I think one has to approach them with all due modesty. That said, I, I do think in, in both books what I've at least tried to do is in a way to recombine certain elements um, and perhaps change the line of sight a little bit uh, so that these quite familiar events may in some ways look a bit different. And in some ways I've spent the last number of years reading a lot of sort of strange stuff that a lot of people who work on the kinds of things I work on in history don't necessarily spend time reading about, and I think all of that has kind of rattled around in my brain. So I, I think these books, and maybe especially the new one, The Nazi Menace, uh, talk about things and have an angle that's not common, even in the fast literature on these subjects. Let me give you an, just one example to make this a little bit um, more concrete. Um, I talk a little bit uh, specifically with respect to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in, you know, 1938-39, his concern about the concept uh, first named in 1937 by the sociologist Laswell, uh, the garrison state. And in in a way, this kind of goes with some of what I have to say about the British uh, military strategist Little Hart. I mean, the sort of total package here is there was a lot of thinking going on in the late 1930s by academics like Laswell or by strategists like Hart and reaching the politicians too about uh, where exactly the dangers lay for a democracy if war came again. And one thing that a lot of these thinkers worried about is that under conditions of modern total war, um, there would be no way that a democracy could fight a total war without becoming basically a totalitarian dictatorship. And Roosevelt saw this challenge quite clearly. I think Chamberlain saw it too. Um, and they were trying in their different ways to not let it happen. And that lies behind a lot of what they were doing strategically. I don't think this point has been appreciated by a lot of historians. Um, for Roosevelt, it has been a little bit more by some historians for Chamberlain, but um, not perhaps in so many words. And, and also, I think there's a kind of evaluation that's worth pondering behind it. I mean, the, the fact that this was a real danger, I think, was real. And the fact that it was something that a politician needed to think about, a leader needed to think about and worry about, that, you know, mobilizing for a total war might mean a degree of political control, a degree of censorship, a degree of regimentation, that citizens of a democracy would find unacceptable. It certainly might involve a degree of casualties, which would no longer be acceptable in the wake of the First World War. And the fact that these these people were trying to uh, figure out a way to mitigate these dangers, I think, is is an important theme in what I'm trying to do, especially in the second book. Mm-hmm. So does that sort of help absolve Chamberlain of the you know perennial charge of appeasement? Yeah, I think it does, or I think at least it mitigates it. I mean, I think he's a much more complex figure uh, in a way than both critics and supporters of him have uh, have presented him. Um, I mean, certainly the kind of old Churchillian uh, stereotype of a kind of foolish, weak, cowardly figure 
is it could not be more wrong. I mean, Chamberlain was none of those things. He was brave, very smart, very capable, very arrogant, rather dictatorial in his own way. Um, so that sort of umbrella toting weakling idea is completely wrong. Uh, the people who have tried to rehabilitate him the most actually tend to be, you know, British Eurosceptic conservatives, and they have a particular agenda in how they're trying to rehabilitate him, which I personally don't, I'm not too fond of either. So in a way, I, I may be among the first historians to try to rehabilitate Chamberlain, but from a more liberal stance. Um, and, you know, I, for all that he's a highly flawed and in many ways unattractive figure, there was a sort of core of what he was trying to do, which is, I think, really hard not to sympathize with, that, that, that he was trying to avoid a war, and if war came, in, in a kind of little heart way to try and fight it in the most casualty-minimizing way. And all of that, I think, is is admirable. I wanted to go back and try to look at, you know, some of the uh, ways in which we got to the later war. So I, I see these two books as kind of uh, a diptych. I don't know if you see them that way, but they seem to me to be very much kind of two parts of the same story. I, I do uh, see them that way. Yeah. And the death of democracy, you know, describes, among other things, a scenario in which the conservatives in the Weimar Republic abetted and accommodated Hitler's rise, thinking that they could bend him, this upstart Austrian colonel, to their own purposes. But, of course, things turned out very differently. Maybe you could describe, you know, this scenario and what happened and what went wrong. Sure. Uh, well, you know, there's obviously there's been a lot of talk in recent years um, of possible comparisons between Trump and Hitler, uh, which I think mostly don't work on the level of the individual persons because they're so, so different, Trump and Hitler. Uh, but I do think comparisons between our situation in the United States now and Germany in the late 20s and early 30s, I think those comparisons do have some bite at a deeper structural level, and your question points to, um, I think, one of the key places where the comparison does have some bite in the sense that you have, you know, amidst uh, economic dislocation, um, you have a, um, a conservative elite consisting largely of uh, business leaders and senior military officers who increasingly feel that the democratic structure they're operating in doesn't work for them. It doesn't work for their interests. And starting uh, in the late 1920s, they start thinking very hard about how they can roll it back. And uh, quite systematically, basically, they, uh, they start using their influence with the upper reaches of the German government to get chancellors appointed who will carry out a right-wing agenda, try and minimize the role of parliament, try and roll back the power of uh, organized labor and, and try and roll back the social reforms of the Weimar Republic and build up the strength of the armed forces and start to reassert Germany's foreign policy presence again. The problem that they have, uh, that these, these conservative elites have, and here again I think it tracks on our situation, the problem they have is that their agenda doesn't have much popular support. They can't win elections on the kinds of things they're trying to do. So what they need is kind of troops. They need electoral troops. They need a political party that can win elections, but which will also uh, then help them carry out their agenda. And for this purpose, Hitler is not perfect, 
but or his party, he and his party are not perfect, but they're highly desirable in some ways because Hitler and the Nazis clearly are anti-communist, anti-socialist, um, nationalist, uh, pro-military. They worry the conservative elites with their demagogy um, and with their possible reckless irresponsibility. But basically, business leaders and military officers swallow hard and decide Hitler and the Nazis are crude. They might be a little reckless, but God bless them. They're nationalists. They're militarists. They're, you know, they're anti-socialists. So, and of course, the elites underestimate Hitler very much, and they tend to see him as just this clown with no education who never made it past private first class in the war, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they think he's a useful tool, and they think his movement will be the troops that they need, the mass base that they need for the kinds of right-wing moves that they want to make. So it's a kind of deal with the devil that they make, um, underestimating and failing to see where this is going to go. But that that's kind of at the heart. That deal is kind of at the heart of what happens in German politics um, in 1933. So you've raised the issue of the parallels or possible parallels between Hitler and Trump, um, and one might explore a bit further uh, the, the use, for example, in the contemporary context of the term fascism. Uh, you know, people even on the right, uh, Stephen Calabresi in an op-ed in the New York Times just the other day mm-hmm. saw, you know, some of Trump's, uh, you know, moves in terms of introducing uh, federal troops into Portland and other places, uh, as sort of fascistic. I mean, is it useful to talk about It seems to me you don't use the term fascism very much, if I recall correctly. Um, Yeah, that's right. You tend to, you talk about Nazism, but not about fascism. And so I wonder whether you could say a little bit about how you see the usefulness of a term like that, you know, today as opposed to in, you know, its original context. Yeah, it's interesting you ask, because I think my thinking on this subject has probably changed in about the last two months in response to some of what we've been seeing. Um, generally speaking, I have always been one of those people who's a little skeptical about the usefulness of the term fascism for a generic kind of political content. Um, so yeah, I have, I have tended to stay away from using it. Uh, that said, uh, I, I am afraid that in the last few months, we're starting to see conduct from Trump which, whatever you want to call it, is alarmingly authoritarian, uh, even more contemptuous of the Constitution and the rule of law than he has been up till now, uh, you know, alarmingly undemocratic, sending federal officers into Portland to pull people off the streets without charge, um, musing about delaying the election, which, as you've noted, has provoked even staunch conservatives into calling Trump fascist. Uh, call it what you will, uh, would be authoritarian, perhaps whatever, fascist if you want. It's, uh, it's highly undesirable, <laughs> I think that we can say. And it is reminiscent of European, uh, fascist or authoritarian movements in the, in the 20s and 30s. Interesting. Um, so, um, you know, you're concerned in, in the Nazi menace book to address the difficult problem of how a democracy should confront an authoritarian regime that is a security threat. And this is, of course, a really very real problem. Uh, but Roosevelt and Churchill saw the threat relatively early 
and moved to address it. Could you say a little bit about why they saw this menace coming and what they thought they had to do with it? Yeah. Um, I'm particularly intrigued by the emphasis that Churchill laid on uh, the Christian heritage of Europe and the characterization of Hitler as the as the Antichrist. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think um, it's interesting, and it's a point I try to stress in the book, that we need to remember that for these people in the 1930s, these problems in many ways are, are very new. And they're kind of flying blind. They, they have to meet new problems with new solutions. New in the sense that, um, the scale of European mass politics had changed beyond recognition in the wake of World War One. Um, and, and you've got very new kinds of regimes. So again, whatever you want to call it, the regime that Hitler is leading in Germany or the regime that uh, Mussolini is leading in Italy or the regime that Stalin is leading in the Soviet Union, these are entirely new kind of facts on the ground in European politics in the sheer scale of their mobilization and brutality and potential aggressiveness and danger. Uh, and at the same time, politicians in places like Britain or America are dealing with much expanded voting publics, um, with, of course, women getting the right to vote, and in Britain after World War I, even for men, the right to vote being dramatically expanded. And in the wake of World War I and in all of the revulsion against the casualties of that war, politicians don't really know where they are, and they have to figure out where they are in terms of how much can you mobilize uh, you know, these new democratic and rather pacifist electorates to meet something that's increasingly clearly a threat, as Hitler's Germany increasingly clearly was in the 30s. Um, and uh, another thing I try to spell out in the book is that precisely because this is new and people like Churchill and Roosevelt are working this out as they go, they work it out really in response to what's happening in Germany and elsewhere. And, and for that matter, Hitler frames a lot of what he's doing in response to the democracy. So it's almost a kind of dialogue that's going on over years about what democracy means, about what you know totalitarianism or authoritarianism mean and how they're going to interact. Um, on the point of defining democracy in terms of Christianity, um, both Roosevelt and Churchill do this. Uh, Roosevelt probably does it more from the heart than Churchill does and um, articula articulates it more fully. I have to give props here uh, to my uh, graduate student, recently graduated, uh, Kai Waltering, who you will know also, John, from things we've done together. Um, and Kai, in his uh, very interesting dissertation, uh, uses, he coins the term Christian totalitarian dichotomy. He's talking really about Cold War policies, uh, American Cold War policies to West Germany and to East Germany and the Soviet Union. But um, sort of building on what Kai has done, I find that that idea is very much articulated by Roosevelt and Churchill. And I think it's... Uh, as I said, for Roosevelt, I think it comes to some extent from the heart. He seems to have been very genuinely uh, uh, a Christian and motivated by religious feelings. Churchill, I think, not quite so much. But both of them recognize that it's a useful way to frame the issue for electorates that are going to be, by and large, affiliated with a Christian denomination one way or another. Um, and so, you know, you see in Roosevelt's State of the Union speech in 1939, where he really reels this idea out quite clearly, He's, he's very definitely framing 
the international problem as one of Christian democracies facing totalitarian regimes, the essence of which is their anti-Christian orientation. Uh, and that framing that he has really keeps up through the war. Churchill does the same thing in some of his famous speeches in 1940. Uh, uh, the task that Britain has in resisting Nazi Germany is very much, as you uh, indicated, uh, framed in terms of defending Christian civilization against uh, an anti-Christian menace. Um, his church's foreign secretary, Lord Halifax, who uh, also, like Roosevelt, was a more deeply believing Christian than Churchill probably was, he also picks this up and uh, frames Britain's war against Germany very much in Christian uh, versus anti-Christian terms. Um, so, you know, I, I think this was in large part a, a sort of way, in a sense, to sell the war to electorates, uh, which these politicians, you know, they weren't quite sure how far they could bring people along with them to bear the sacrifices that, you know, a major war effort would involve. And then to some extent, especially with someone like Roosevelt and Halifax, probably reflected how they really thought about world affairs. So some of the comments that you've made remind me that uh, in addition to the fact that you're a historian, you're also a lawyer. Uh, I hope it's okay that I mentioned that. <laughs> sure. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the problem of addressing an anti-democratic menace is complicated when it comes from within uh, a, a, at least a putatively democratic country uh, itself and has many sympathizers in that country. So, the question is, you know, how does one address that problem? It, uh, for all the worries that Trump will refuse to leave office after the election, uh, which many people, including the pre uh, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden, have, you know, discussed, um, you know, Brett Stevens, a columnist at the New York Times, recently said that um, he thought Trump was actually too cowardly to stage a, a coup. Um, but I mean, the broader question is really, uh, how do you kind of enforce constitutional norms and laws, uh, with somebody who seems to get away with simply, you know, uh, ignoring them and violating them and, you know, threatening to sue when that serves his purposes? I mean, it's a very difficult constitutional problem, it seems to me. It is a profoundly uh, difficult problem and one sort of by definition for which there's no clear, certainly no clear legal remedy. Um, and as you indicated, the problem comes in at least two subsets. So there's the problem of, uh, and this is sort of from the standpoint of a democratic leader, the problem of what you do if the totalitarian menace you're facing abroad has a substantial body of sympathizers at home who are part of your electorate. That's one kind of problem. Um, all the democracies had it in the 30s and 40s. Um, you know, the United States, of course, with groups like the German-American Bund, which was a very pro-Nazi, mostly German emigre uh, organization, or sort of even weirder outfits like the Silver Shirts, in Britain, it tended to be, uh, oddly, a, a more elite affair. Uh, there were a lot of German sympathizers or Nazi sympathizers um, in the higher reaches of the British social structure, which kind of meant in the higher reaches of the British government. Um, and there was a small, not very effective, uh, British fascist party as well, of course, uh, Oswald Mosley and the British Union of Fascists. So the problem that poses, and again, you see it most clearly with Roosevelt, I think, 
is when you have that kind of weight of, uh, uh, people sympathizing with the putative enemy, how you move your country in a democratic way towards resisting the foreign threat. And, you know, I think the presence of groups like the Bund, uh, was one of those factors that contributed to Roosevelt's, you know, you can characterize this different ways, extreme caution, uh, perhaps pragmatic caution, perhaps more, uh, too much hesitation in taking steps towards meeting the threat that Nazi Germany constituted because he knew that groups like the Bund were only the sort of tip of the spear of a big body of opinion in the United States, which was certainly isolationist and sometimes isolationist because of even more troubling attitudes like anti-Semitism or sympathy to authoritarianism. In a way, the problem's worse, and it's even harder to solve when the leader himself or herself, in those days, of course, only himself, um, is also in some ways complicit with the foreign threat. Uh, and, you know, Trump has been raising this problem in different ways for years. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating in working on this book was that Neville Chamberlain uh, posed this problem for his government as well. Um, there are only very recently declassified British intelligence documents which tell the story of basically Neville Chamberlain's office opening up a back channel in late 1938 uh, to make deals with Nazi Germany uh, without involving the foreign office and doing it kind of on the sly. And interestingly, and this also oddly parallels our situation, um, the British Domestic Intelligence Service, MI5, discovered what Chamberlain was up to and were very worried by it, and they supplied uh, the Foreign Office with information on what Chamberlain was doing, and the head of the Foreign Office, the, uh, the permanent undersecretary, uh, uh, Alexander Cadogan, then had to figure out, what do I do with this information? Do I go to Halifax, the foreign secretary? What will Halifax do? How will Chamberlain react if this all becomes public? In a way, it's an analogy to the kind of scenario that you referred to in your question. You know, what do we do if Trump doesn't leave office? What do we do? What do you do if you're British, you're in the British government, the prime minister is secretly dealing with the Nazis, and you confront him with this information? How's he going to react, and what do you do about that? There's, there are a lot of bad scenarios uh, that can result out of that for which there isn't a clear legal remedy or, or pathway. And a lot of the possible remedies or pathways could, you know, potentially lead to political chaos or violence. So, you know, I, I think it's fascinating that the problem has come up in these ways, uh, in other contexts. Uh, what wisdom history can offer us in terms of a solution that's a lot more problematic and a lot less clear. So it is. So it is. Um, so another uh, matter upon which, you know, history might uh, provide some enlightenment for us is the issue that you address in the books about the use of uh, the media, uh, disinformation, propaganda, etc. Um, of course, Hitler is famous for having been a master manipulator of the of the media, of giving these speeches that whipped people into a frenzy and those kinds of things. Um, 
I wonder, you know, what you would say about that and the state of communications and, and their role in Hitler's rise in the 30s, but uh, also, you know, how would you compare to today's situation and, and Trump's also, you know, often noted uh, mastery, if that's the right word, of, uh, of the media? Yeah, you know, um, among the things that really fascinated me and surprised me when I was working on actually both of these books, but maybe especially the Nazi menace, um, is the extent to which the kinds of problems like that that we're very familiar with in our uh, situation today, how much they are actually prefigured by the 20s and 30s um, with exactly the same kinds of concerns and a lot of the same kinds of discourse. And again, all of it around what were then new forms of media. A lot of the discourse in the 20s and 30s was around, you know, what does radio mean for politics? What does film mean for politics? These new media forms, which, you know, in their time are versions of what we have today with, you know, the Internet and social media. Um, and uh, the other thing that I think surprised and fascinated me uh, was, you know, uh, historians of Germany are certainly uh, very familiar with Hitler's um, uh, sort of celebration of irrationality and his open contempt for truth and his advocacy of the uh, usefulness of lies in political campaigning. Um, what surprised me was just how much was common, actually, kind of around the, uh, the industrialized, westernized world in the in the 30s, uh, how, how much that kind of issue was common. So you see in the United States um, at the time that the, the Hitler and his propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, are really developing a propaganda which is you know, sort of blatantly dishonest and wallows in irrationality and, and sort of celebrates the fact that there's no real verifiable factual reality. You see exactly the same things happening in the United States. Um, generally not called propaganda, but generally called um, by the more uh, mild term public relations or, or political consulting. And some of the pioneers of public relations and political consulting for United States political campaigns, and this is a new industry in the 20s and 30s, they're saying exactly the same things that Hitler's saying in Mein Kampf and in his kind of practice of propaganda. They're saying, you know, uh, there are alternative facts, as later people would put it. You know, there, there is no factual reality. You know, Joseph Goebbels said at one point, um, objectivity doesn't exist. You know, professors think it does, but professors don't make history. Um, American public relations consultants say the same things. There are no facts. There's just kind of prejudices. So what you do with this in politics is you just go with gut instincts. And again, the Americans and the Germans kind of say the same things. Uh, go for the gut, you know, animate people with basic emotions. They'll vote for you if, you know, you can kind of line yourself up with their basic emotions. Facts don't matter. People aren't very smart. Don't tire them out with, you know, data on economic or political problems. Go for the gut. And this is something that, you know, the husband and wife team, Whitaker and Baxter, discovered, and it's exactly the same discovery that Joseph Goebbels made as to how you can, you know, run a campaign, how you can um, garner mass public support for a candidate utterly irrespective of whatever particular policies that candidate might actually stand for. Interesting. Um, 
I guess I want to move to another topic. Um, and I, I'm just, you know, thinking about one of the early questions I asked, which was the issue about how the conservative elites thought they could bend Hitler to their purposes. And of course it turned out very differently. Um, but, you know, in some sense, a number of those people were complicit in helping him to power. Of course, he originally came to power legally um, and then transformed uh, his government into, you know, a criminal regime. Um, but I'm thinking about the uh, article that Ann Applebaum, the historian and journalist, recently wrote about uh, you know, Republicans in the, in the mm-hmm. United States and the yeah. extent to which they would also share or, or would be at some point, you know, held accountable for assisting, uh, the regime, if that's the right word, uh, into power that we, that we now have. Um, so I wonder, you know, do the people from the twenties and thirties who assisted Hitler's rise, did they, you know, pay the price in the court of historical opinion? Um, in the court of historical opinion, they generally have uh, paid the price. Um, in their own lives, most of them not so much. Um, but certainly, you know, no historian nowadays has anything much nice to say about the people, the most important and powerful people who enabled Hitler's ascent to the chancellorship, um, most notably the president and former field marshal Paul von Hindenburg, um, or uh, the man who had briefly been chancellor in 1932 and then became Hitler's vice chancellor, Franz von Papen. Those two, I think, in particular, are seen as the most critical enablers, and they they are scorned in history for that. Actually, um, I pointed out in my Death of Democracy book that it's sort of ironic that Hindenburg, when he was president of Germany from 1925 to 1934, his overriding concern at all times was his own reputation and preserving his kind of heroic um, stature as as a great leader and sort of stabilizing force and defender of Germany. And it was for that reason that he uh, agreed to put Hitler in the chancellorship because he thought Hitler would bring political stability on right-wing terms, which would end the threat of civil war and would thus preserve Hindenburg's reputation as, you know, this great defender of Germany. And ironically, you know, of all the things Hindenburg did in his life, nothing has more permanently torched his reputation than the fact that ultimately it was he who opened the door to Hitler to become chancellor. Um, And the same is true of most of the others. Uh, in a way, the more interesting cases are the people who facilitated Hitler's rise to power and then turned against him. Some of them army officers, some of them senior civil servants. Um, uh, some of those people's story I tell, actually both in The Death of Democracy and in The Nazi Menace. You know, it's interesting that as things developed, especially after 1938, it was senior army officers who were always at the heart of the only resistance movement that actually had much chance of getting Hitler out of power and, you know, who tried on a number of occasions to kill him and to launch a coup d'etat. They were um, perhaps surprisingly for people who were such competent military commanders, they were utterly incompetent uh, plotters of coups with results that are familiar to us, you know, from movies like Valkyrie. Um, uh, 
But in some ways, you know, they're, and I, I hesitate slightly to say this, but in some ways their heart was in the right place, at least in the sense that most of them were motivated by a repugnance for most of what Hitler stood for. And in many ways, the heart of their resistance was basically moral. I mean, it's interesting in the sense that, um, you know, we've recently seen a number of high-ranking military figures in the United States break the sort of professional code, really, of silence that they normally observe uh, in order to make statements that, uh, you know, articulate their views about the current leadership in the White House. And, I mean, it helps here that the military is... I think the most admired major social political institution in the country. Um, but I guess I wonder whether or not, you know, we do we have a are we better now at kind of because of the Nazi experience and other experiences from the early 20th century? Are we better now at identifying, you know, bad guys when they come along and doing things about it? <laughs> or have we? You know, are, is human frailty still kind of the dominant reality and um, things happen that, you know, people in retrospect wish hadn't happened and hadn't, they hadn't been involved in? Um, you know, I think it depends who you mean by we. Um, if, if all of us had learned those lessons and were better, then there would be precisely zero chance of Donald Trump being reelected, in my view, um, in light of his, to any rational person, I think, um, gross assault on the rule of law and the Constitution in a myriad of ways, to his pretty clear and repeated acts of treason. Um, none, none of this would gather any electoral support at all, if, you know, there weren't, uh, if, I mean, there's about roughly 45% of the American voting public, which evidently has not learned these lessons. Um, but many other people have, and I actually entertain the hope that some of them are senior army officers. So if it really comes to it, you know, after November, if Trump loses and won't leave office, um, I have been somewhat encouraged by some of these recent examples of senior officers speaking out against what he's uh, been doing to think that the ultimate arbiter of force will be when it comes to it deployed on the side of the rule of law and the constitution and not on the side of, you know, um, a would be perpetrator of a coup. Uh, I'm inclined to agree by the way, that also if it came to it, Trump is probably too cowardly for a coup d'etat. Um, I, I could be wrong about that, but I hope I'm not. Well, I hope you're not either. Uh, thank you very much for this conversation. Um, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Professor Benjamin Carter Hett of Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center for taking the, the time to discuss his recent books on the rise of the Nazi menace and the death of democracy in Germany uh, that preceded it. Um, I also want to thank Christo Voinoff for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. Bye-bye.